When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind the scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacher boys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Have you ever read a book that just left you thinking nonstop for the next few months? Like every time you're in a conversation or every time you're watching something, parts of that book keep coming back to mind over and over and over again. That's exactly what happened after I read Amanda Montel's book, Cultish. Uh, Amanda Montel is a writer, language scholar, and podcast host from Baltimore, and she's the author of two critically acclaimed books, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, an indie bestseller about the language of cults from Scientology to Soul Cycle, and Word Slut, a feminist guide to taking back the English language. Amanda's books have earned praise from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Time Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, and Kirkus Reviews, among others. And Amanda is currently developing Word Slut for television with FX Studios, serving as creator, writer, and executive producer. She's also the creator and co-host of the hilarious comedy cult podcast, Sounds Like a Cult. 
As a reporter and essayist, Amanda's writing has been featured in Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, Teen Vogue, Refinery29, Dame Magazine, The Rumpus, and Who, What, Where, where she formerly served as the Features and Beauty Editor. She holds a degree in linguistics from NYU and lives in Los Angeles with her partner, plants, and pets. You can find her on Instagram with the handle at Amanda underscore Montel. You guys really want to check out her book. Definitely head to the link in the show notes. It destroyed my brain. That is not an understatement. It changed the way that I listen to language, the way that I perceive conversations, and it is just phenomenal. You're going to get a taste of that in today's interview where we discuss the language that cults use to manipulate people. Definitely listen to the entire episode. Grab a copy of Amanda's book and go follow her stuff check out what she's doing. She's absolutely incredible. But without further ado, here's my interview with Amanda Montel. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk with you because your book, people in my group know I've been talking about it nonstop. And uh, it really focuses focuses in on the language of fanaticism. Um, And all of your work seems to be centered around the words that we use and how important they are. Why are words so important? Well, language is the fabric that makes up our reality, right? Um, it's it's everything. Without language, we have no community shared beliefs. We have no cults in general. Um, it's it's wildly taken for granted because language is invisible and seemingly commitment free. You know, we grow up with axioms like sticks and stones will break your bones, but words can never hurt you. Um, And that causes us really to overlook the true material power of language to influence our worldview, to encourage conformity and shut down independent thinking, to coerce, to condition all of the things that a cult really needs in order to gain and maintain power. Um, I've been interested in language ever since I was very, very little. Who knows why? Some combination of nurture and nature made me uh, just a very wordy human. (laughs) Um, And language has always been the lens through which I see or I guess hear the world. Um, I've always been interested in how language works to help a person craft an identity or access different spaces, um, cultivate a personality, um, gain access to power or lose power. And um, all of that is, is very important when you're talking about cults or cultish groups, as I like to refer to them. Yeah, I was I was interested in picking up your book, and I mentioned right before I hit record, like, obviously, with the nature of this show, I've read a lot from Stephen Hassan, and, you know, so many like him, like, obviously, you know, also survivors like Sarah Edmondson or Leah Remini, and, and, you know, reading your book was interesting, because you are focused specifically on language, like, that is the subheading of your book, is it's the language of fanaticism, and... I realized very quickly, like language isn't just one part of how cults operate. It's kind of foundational to how they gain any traction whatsoever. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, and for people listening, obviously they should pick up a copy of your book um, and and <laughs> see the full explanation for this. But how do cults weaponize language to manipulate people and to kind of expand their influence? 
Right. Well, first I want to say that in a lot of the cult documentaries, mostly that you'll watch or, you know, cult media coverage that you'll find, um, they don't tend to give very satisfying explanations for what causes people to wind up spending years and years and years in these really destructive groups. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all just this vague talk of brainwashing and mind control. But very early on in my research for this book, I learned that brainwashing is nothing but a metaphor. It's not a real or testable phenomenon. It doesn't meet the criteria of the scientific method. You can't Mm. prove that brainwashing doesn't exist. Um, It completely discounts people's ability to, you know, think for themselves. Um, And it also can really dehumanize certain people when we think, oh, they were these like mind controlled minions. They're completely unlike me. I would never succumb to brainwashing. What's really going on is much more interesting. You don't, you know, cut open someone's brain and scrub it clean. A lot of people who wind up in these groups are incredibly bright and optimistic and service oriented. There are people who truly believe that solutions to the world's most urgent problems can be found and that by affiliating with this group or this guru, they can be a part of that change. Um, And in order to manipulate people like that, you need these methods of conversion and conditioning and coercion that have everything to do with language, or at least that's my thesis, Um, which as you mentioned, language is so foundational. So in the book, I talk about all these different techniques of cultish language from, you know, special buzzwords and misleading euphemisms to renamings to taking existing English words and twisting them to have a specific and very emotionally charged cult meaning to thought terminating cliches. I talk about all these elements of cultish language and how they work not only in notorious groups like Jonestown and Heaven's Gate and Scientology, but also how they show up in groups um, less like further away from the soul cycle. (laughs) You know, like MLMs and SoulCycle and social media, spiritual influencers, um, because cultish influence shows up everywhere and the proof is in the way that we speak. Right, right. I was was thinking because there's a a dorky dad in me that wanted to start the episode saying this episode's brought to you by SoulCycle. But I just, (laughs) you know, I I thought I'd start on a more serious note. Uh, But no, I am interested because when you look at all these different organizations and your book, what's interesting about it is that, you know, there's there's kind of easy, low-hanging fruit to go after, you know, the Jonestown, there is Scientology, there are these things that are clearly, you know, that's a cult, <laughs> you know, um, and then, you know, the minute you start talking, and I know this from experience, the minute you start talking about churches being culty, you know, and you start talking about religious organizations or Corporations. Yeah, corporations, CrossFit, you know, all these different things to varying degrees. And CrossFit and Scientology are not equally equal, you know, um, depending on who you ask. But with, um, you know, with this topic specifically, it is really interesting seeing that from the range of harmless-ish to actually harmful, they do use the same language, the same phrasing, things like that. How much of this specific use of vocabulary that does condition or coerce people, how much of it is intentional and well thought out? Like, did they sit down and map out, here's how you, you know, for lack of a better word, brainwash somebody or manipulate someone? Or is it just something that people happen to do? A certain type of leader happens to talk this way? Mm. Yeah. 
It's a great question. Um, I mean, we tend to think of cult leaders like Jim Jones or Marshall Applewhite as these evil geniuses, you know, these like great masterminds. Um, but really, they're mostly just opportunists um, and they're following power wherever it comes, however quickly it comes. Um, they don't necessarily have uh, a set ideology or brand in mind when they start out. And that's one of the main reasons why so many of these groups will constantly reinvent themselves and why the ideology will change um, because the the leader is just, you know, doing whatever is convenient and whatever will grant them the most power. So, you know, even Jonestown, for example, started out with pretty pure intentions. It was an integrationist church and then it turned darker and more destructive as Jim Jones grew more power hungry and more maniacal and all of those things. Um, but in terms of the language, you know, as I mentioned, like you, you cannot hope to manipulate someone, much less a group of people, without mastering these language techniques. Um, Jim Jones is someone who is extremely strategic about the way that he used language. He would study the oratory techniques of populist leaders, everyone from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Hitler. Um, mm. And he would take the most compelling parts of their speech stylings and he would put his own Jonesian twist on them. Um, he was sort of a Machiavellian master of code switching. There were people in the People's Temple, which is the, the group known as Jonestown, who came from a lot of different walks of life. There were um, sort of, you know, college educated young white folks living alongside, you know, middle aged black women who were active in San Francisco's church scene, Baptist church scene. And he needed different language tactics in his tool belts to appeal to those different groups of people. Um, now, again, because brainwashing isn't this real or testable phenomenon, he couldn't just like say some kind of magic spell and right. immediately be able to hook someone who didn't on some level want to be hooked already. So there are a lot of ingrained reasoning flaws that in a way do our own brainwashing for us. Oh, sorry. Uh, getting a phone a spam phone call from South Korea is it because I've been watching Perfect. squid game Perfect. Um, so yeah I'll backtrack um so yeah you can't you know uh but, right so there are these human reasoning flaws that in a way do our brainwashing for us like confirmation bias we hear what we want to hear um and there's cognitive dissonance at play when someone is promising us something that we so badly want to believe and using language that cues us to stop thinking or to have a strong emotional reaction. And yet we have this gut instinct that something is amiss. Um, so I think, you know, most destructive cultish leaders are being quite strategic about their language. You can even see that in abusive corporate environments when, uh, you know, I mean, one in five CEOs has been determined to have psychopathic tendencies. <laughs> so um, that's, that's quite culty, not in the same way as, uh, you know, really damaging religious cults, but also, you know, a lot in common, a lot of abuses in common. Um, but yeah, you'll, you'll find CEOs who, come up with a very specific type of rhetoric, like uh, 
the the CEO of WeWork. If anyone's watched the WeWork documentary on Hulu, he had so many buzzwords and phrases and labels that were meant to divide people into a superior us and an inferior them, um, chants and mantras that were meant to bond people together and manufacture that sense of solidarity. And those things don't always have to be bad, um, but it's when you know those negative intentions come in and the thought terminating cliches and phrases that are really meant to shut down your independent thinking and sense of individualism um, are at play in excess that yeah. you know you're, you're in a slightly more destructive cult. Yeah, we, we've touched on thought terminating cliches a bit and I definitely want to talk about that because that was that wrecked my brain um really grasping what that was but but before we do that you mentioned like jonestown for example people from all walks of life and in corporate environments there's people all different backgrounds all different iq levels all different social you know there's so many different people and it seems like you know when you hear stories of anything from an axiom to a scientology to some of the independent baptist cults that we talk about on the show there are people who for all intents and purposes shouldn't be sucked into a cult, you know, for, and I'm doing air quotes as I say that, you know, so it gets offended by that, but you look at it and go like, they're intelligent or well-educated or this. It, it, it seems like there's no class system when it comes to being susceptible to cults. Is there, <laughs> is there any kind of level on which some are more susceptible than others? It's really complicated. I mean, there are a lot of things that might contribute to a person being more vulnerable to fraud, scams, etc. Um, but it tends to be like the opposite from what people might think. So, um, you know, prevailing wisdom says that people who wind up in cults are desperate, intellectually deficient, disturbed in some way. But why would a cult want someone like that? Right. Cults want winners. They want people of privilege with time and money and connections to spend, to burn. Mm-hmm. Um, they want people who have enough idealism and enthusiasm and resources so that when inevitably the lofty promises that were made don't come true, they're not just going to get the hell out of Dodge. You know, if someone is really down and out financially or, you know, doesn't have, doesn't have anything to their name, they're not going to be able to stick it out in a cultish group for very long. They're going to need to start making money for their kids or, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to be able to hang out for very long. Um, And that's why you see, so many um, sort of, you know, upper middle class, college educated, you know, white privileged people being targeted, um, people who are well connected in their communities. Cults are like recruitment machines, a lot of them anyway. Um, and I'm not just talking about like religious cults. I'm also talking about multi-level marketing cults and, and spaces like that. But, you know, there's a lot that uh, new age ideology, which is, which pervades a lot of cultish groups, has in common with uh, like fundamentalist Christian and evangelical ideology. And so um, certain people who are rejecting the Christianity that they maybe grew up with still find some of that rhetoric familiar when they mm-hmm. hear it in a new age context. So in new age groups, there's often talk of being born in trauma, which is not that different from being born in sin. Um, there are the same good evil binaries that you might hear in certain Christian spaces. There's talk of paradigm shifts and great awakenings, which 
sound not dissimilar from a second coming or a rapture. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a, a type of person that these groups tend to target. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, it, and yeah, again, like you said, prevailing wisdom would say, oh, it's dumb or easily manipulated or evil people join cults. Right. You know, and that was one of the things, you know, when I interviewed Sarah Edmondson and, and Nippy was was talking with them. It's like very motivated in their career, uh, wanting to help people, wanting to, you know, do something good and encourage yeah. other people. Um, you see that in Leah Remini's interviews, too. Like that was it was this very like we are the hope for mankind kind of feel and you know and again intelligent people um very very intelligent people with no background of any kind of cultish environment whatsoever it's it's kind of startling yeah i mean you could argue that hollywood and acting is cultish and you it's could argue way. that but yeah. but i will say you know the the number one like fatal flaw i found talking to cult survivor after cult survivor was exactly what you're talking about this sense of idealism, this overabundance of optimism that they could be part of this hope for mankind, which is what all of these groups promise. Mm -hmm. You know, these groups don't promise something that, you know, you wouldn't want to be a part of, then nobody would want to be a part of it. You know, they promise something like really, really alluring. Then they, of course, they bait and switch you. But what's funny is that like cynicism is something that will like, sure, keep you from, you know, keep you safe from being recruited to one of these groups. But it'll also probably rob you of a lot of the joy of being a human being on earth. So, um, you know, toward the end of Cultish, I talk about how uh, when given personality tests, some of history's finest minds, including Carl Sagan, scored off the charts in both conscientiousness and open-mindedness. So there was this balance of, you know, you're not so open to every wacky idea that crosses your desk that Carl Sagan, for example, was willing to believe in the 1970s that UFOs had already landed on earth and were communicating with humans. But he was open to the idea of extraterrestrial life in the mm. 1970s when that was considered like a very edgy woo-woo idea that now, you know, most scientists are, are on board with, very open to. So it's all about that balance, shocker, like a life lesson. Um, because, you know, I, I don't want people to be too paranoid that they're going to like slip and fall into yeah. a cult. Um, but you're completely right that it is this sense of dreaminess, maybe even the same dreaminess that could convince a person they might be able to become famous, uh, that Mm. could convince a person they might be able to, you know, solve the world's problems. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And you kind of touched on a phenomenon that I see a lot, and it, it makes me very uncomfortable. And, um, actually, so I haven't talked about this on the show, I, I will, in the release order, talk about this. But I, I deconverted from Christianity like over the last couple months and um, which was an interesting thing because I stepped out of fundamentalism and was like, oh, I'm still a Christian, but I have this. And it was actually your book was very instrumental in that kind of process, which was interesting and and I could talk about for a long time. But it was, um, you know, coming out of, you know, Christianity and reading, and I've always read for the last several years, I've always read different thoughts, you know, sometimes with the intention of knowing how to overcome certain people's arguments. Um, but I would, I would, I would read Dawkins. I read Dawkins six years ago. I would read Hitchens. I would read all of these different, you know, different people. And 
you know, what I noticed was I have the same level of uncomfortability with Richard Dawkins that I do with many fundamentalist preachers because there is this very, uh, I guess, fundamentalist approach to belief. It's it's mm-hmm. quick to shut down conversation with anyone who would be a theist, quick to shut down a conversation with someone who would believe differently. And his tribe around him, for lack of a better word, is very cultish, you know? Mm-hmm. And I see that with YouTuber, atheist YouTubers, and there is this aura of like fundamentalism just dripping off of it. And as someone who came out of that staunch background, I'm terrified of that. Like mm. it, there is this balance in the middle where it's like, not there's very smart people that are theist. There's very smart people that are atheist. There's very smart people that are religious. There's some that, you know, are not religious that are also very smart. It's, it's a, it's a blend of things. And what I'm noticing is that, you know, people who especially grew up in religious environments, they tend to seem to, you know, go off that deep end and rush to another form of fundamentalism. They'll rush out from fundamentalist Christianity and become the most cultish version of an atheist that you can find. Definitely. And that sort of speaks to what I was saying before, where you'll often find ex-Christians gravitating toward new age belief. Yeah. Um, And you know, in, in fringier religions as well, um, or, or like culty compound atmospheres. I, I, one of my favorite sources for the book, this woman named Laura Johnston Cole, who survived Jonestown, she immediately went and joined another sort of like socialist commune, um, called Synanon, which by freak coincidence was the cult where my dad spent his teenage years against his will these were sort of the seeds that planted my cult fascination because I grew up on my dad's stories of this uh, sort of like promised socialist utopia in the Mm -hmm. Bay area where he was forced to move at the age of 14 and left as soon as he could. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it also really speaks to human nature that we, we crave community practices, rituals, we crave meaning, we crave answers and all of that is particularly true during times of crisis in a culture. So in the United States, we tend to see cults spike during times of sociopolitical turbulence. That's why so many new religious movements cropped up during the late 60s and 70s, time when you had the civil rights movement and the, the Vietnam War and Kennedy assassinations, you know, all these things left a lot of Americans feeling sort of existentially high and dry, caused them to mistrust institutions that were supposed to provide them with support from the government to traditional religion. Does any of this sound familiar? Yeah. You know, yeah. this is a lot of what we're seeing now. Um, and, you know, when an alternative leader comes forward and says, I have the answers you know, I know who's evil. I know who's good. I have access to a type of transcendent wisdom that I'm willing to impart on you if you do this, this, and this. That's a message that really consistently resonates, um, particularly with Americans. (laughs) Um, But we as human beings are also just fundamentally cultish by nature, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You're seeing that right now, because as you were talking, I was thinking about COVID and I was thinking, you know, churches in decline, like church attendance, Christianity is in a decline. But 
politically, people are becoming much more culty than ever before. And so you do see people flocking to people who claim to have the answers, whether it's answers of how to combat, which I do not want to get into on this episode, but people who want to combat, you know, um, you know, this is what the cure is. This is what the restriction should be. This is what the restriction shouldn't be. You start getting into all these different levels and people become, you know, ardent followers of whatever so-and-so says, whether that be a Joe Rogan or a Donald Trump, or whether that be a Joe Biden and a Kamala Harris, sure. or, you know, and um, it is interesting um, that that's how that plays out, that we seek someone who does have all the answers and the opportunists have a great <laughs> open door right there. Oh, totally. And, you know, social media influencers, I mean, people who may have never been able to command a group of people in person 40 years ago are now able to build a an ideological sect of their own online, you know, for better and for worse, there's now a fanatical fringe group for everyone, an ideological camp for everyone. Um, But also think about how the lines separating political figure, spiritual leader, celebrity, friend, self-help guru, these lines have become incredibly blurry as of late. You know, like Elon Musk comes to mind. He's someone who is a business leader and he would have been like in that category a few decades ago, but he's not just a business leader. He's also now a celebrity and an influencer. I mean, he hosted SNL, a political figure. He, um, he is almost a spiritual figure. I mean, he's literally trying to fly people to another planet, like start a new colony. So, but at least he actually has rockets. Okay. At least there's actual rockets. No, that's true. No, that's quite true. Um, yes, yes. But yeah, I mean, the the lines are are really blurry, separating like one type of leader from another. And um, I even see that from my own like small but engaged social media following people come to me for answers to things that I absolutely mm. do not have and want and they want me to have them. Um, and I I don't have the energy to start my own cult. So I'm just like, I don't know, man. That's um, so funny. That's that's something that's <laughs> happened with this show over the last two years has been people it makes me uncomfortable because I see some people behaving in a cultish way surrounding the show or Mm -hmm. around the topic. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not the leader of a thing. Like I, I like, and it's funny because, and you know, this is an author and somebody who's trying to get their name out too and doing your show in some level you are, but also, you know, not to steal Tony Robbins, who's, you know, his other thing, but I'm not your guru. You know what I mean? Like I don't have the answers. And it seems like people, a vast majority of people are uncomfortable with the the uncomfortableness of let's figure it out. Like right. we don't have to have an instant answer, you know, and that that's something that really was frustrating for me growing up in fundamentalism is like everybody was so quick to black and white answers. And if it didn't click for me, I couldn't just be like, oh, yeah, we'll just go with that. You know, like it had to be this questioning process. And a lot of people just seem uncomfortable with that for for some reason. Totally. I mean, that's red flag number one. Like anything legitimate will stand up to scrutiny. But Mm. a cultish leader doesn't allow questioning or dissent. Um, That's where those thought terminating cliches come in, which we've been dancing around. I might as well well explain. (laughs) Yeah, let's, let's dance right into that. Because I think this for me... Thought-terming cliches, and I'm pretty sure Stephen Hassan talks about it in his book, but the way you explained it, 
like I kept rewinding. I listened to the audiobook. I kept rewinding it and like listening to it and going like, oh my God, like everything everybody says is a thought terminating cliche. I was like, <laughs> start playing through political rhetoric and religious things. And, and so, yeah, definitely define what that is. And let's kind of talk about functionally what that looks like. Cause it kind of speaks to, you know, things should be able to hold up to scrutiny, right? And so when we see now in the age of the internet, like people should be able to Google Scientology is a cult, but people are still getting sucked into Scientology. People should be able to tell some of the fundamentalist, you know, teachings aren't accurate. They should be able to Google that and figure figure that out. How do thought terminating cliches kind of stop those thoughts dead in their tracks? Right. Okay. So a thought terminating cliche, this is a term that was coined in the early 60s by a psychologist named Robert J. Lifton. And it describes a sort of stock expression that is easily memorized, easily repeated, and aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. So as we've mentioned, questioning is the enemy to any cultish group. Um, you need people to, to fall in line. You need to silence people whenever they try to express pushback or point out a wrinkle in the flawed system that is this cult. Um, and a thought terminating cliche will do just that. It will cause someone to um, you know, put their own cognitive dissonance to bed for a little while. So in a new age group, you've been mentioning uh, Sarah Nippy. So in a group like Nexium, a thought terminating cliche might sound something like uh, dismissing a valid fear or anxiety as a limiting belief mm-hmm. or saying, well, don't let yourself be ruled by fear. Um, but thought terminating cliches also show up. Oh my gosh. in so many spaces, political spaces um, and in our everyday lives. I mean, Things like it is what it is, boys will be boys, it's Mm. all in God's plan. Those are all thought terminating cliches and they halt a conversation from moving forward. Mm. Um, Now, again, you know, in terms of like all the all the information you would ever want to know about Scientology is already out there. Like, why do people join anyway? I mean, people just people do what they want to do. And there are always going to be power abusive people who are taking advantage of others, idealism, vulnerability in one way or another. And, you know, this language is so powerful that you could, you know, Google Scientology to your heart's content, although that's not even allowed in Scientology. That's called black PR and you're not supposed to look at it. Um, But, you know, you can, you can get all of the, the internet's wealth of information. And yet, if you want so badly to believe that this group has the answers and that all of that is just black PR and all of that is just these naysayers who are trying, who are like threatened by the leader at the top. If you want to believe that, then you just will like the human mind. You you are your own cult leader in a way. Well, you start telling yourself the thought terminating cliches, you know, that was something that, you know, I look back at fundamentalist, you know, the sect that I was in, you know, and I'm always hesitant saying it's a cult, for one of the reasons you mentioned in your book, which is that is a, you know, that is that semantic stop sign. It's a thought terminating cliche ends the conversation. It's like telling someone you're brainwashed, like good luck totally. convincing them of anything at that point. But, you know, growing up within it, you know, there were things where if anything negative was said, um, I remember very clearly, this was one of the things that kind of made my brain just explode, you know, reading your book was I started thinking through all the ones I'd heard over the years, you know, um, you know, when I, when I mentioned um, there was a documentary that came out from 2020 uh, exposing abuse within the independent Baptist world. And 
Uh, I remember one of the lawyers that works in the environment stood up at a conference and said, you know, you guys don't even need to watch it. It's a satanic attack full of lies, you know? And it's like, he shut down the chance that there could be anything valid within that before it even reached us. You know, um, you had, um, when something didn't make sense, you had a question, God works in mysterious ways. You mm-hmm. know, if you had an issue with, um, abuse happening, I, in 11th grade, you know, I had a, I was pointing out that there was a sexual predator in, in the pulpit. And it was like, you need to forgive. You're just bitter. Um, if you didn't get something from the message, it wasn't helping you. Your heart's not right. There were so many that were just second nature. And uh, it's actually one of the things that really, there were a lot of things, but that's one of the things when it came to Christianity is I noticed the Bible actually is full of thought terminating cliches, um, which I know is going to be a very controversial thing for me to say, but there is. I mean, they're useful for religion because like, you know, religion is not science. It's a faith-based thing. Like it requires you to suspend your disbelief in a lot of ways. And there's always going to be wrinkles. Like they're always going to, they're always going to be things that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And you're going to need a thought terminating cliche to get someone to like, stop thinking about that. Like don't think about it too hard is the ultimate thought terminating cliche. And it's used all the time. Like, you know, we were talking about, it's like, the word cult is incredibly charged. Mm-hmm. It's sensational. It's unspecific. What even is a cult? Like, you know, what is the difference between religion and cult? Like, it's so subjective. But it's also very difficult to define religion. Like, scholars have been arguing for so long about what a religion even is. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. And, and like I said, there's so many, I mean, you know, God's ways are not your ways. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. God works mysterious ways. There's a lot that shut down those those kind of things. But also, um, I am curious on the religious versus cult side, because to me, I mean, Stephen Hassan, I think, gives a good explanation. Religions that show what they believe on the surface and show you up front what they're about can be healthy, because you can, again, and also, we don't know. You know, there's some things we don't know. Is there, was there a design? Was it accident? You know, like there's, people are going to debate that forever. Um, but, you know, the thing is, you have to reveal what you're about before you suck somebody in. But I am curious to know your perspective on that. Like when you look at religions and cults, the lines are also very blurred sometimes, you know, you look at evangelical Christianity right now, even people who are evangelical Christians are going like, this feels kind of culty. Some of the Mm -hmm. stuff happening in the Southern Baptist convention feels culty. What is the distinguishing, you know, line between a cult and a religious group in your mind? I mean, it's going to be different depending on who you talk to. Um, There are lists of criteria that people have tried to come up with, you know, is is something a cult when there's an us versus them mentality and ends justify the means philosophy, philosophy, supernatural beliefs, charismatic leaders, grave exit costs. But you have good on that list and there will be plenty of like fringy groups that have been or could be called cults that won't check off every box and yet you will often find mainstream religions yeah. and other kinds of groups, Silicon Valley corporations that will check off every box. Um, you know, so many accepted religions in the United States were once considered blasphemous cults, including the Quakers who are just about like the most peaceful people ever. Um, there's this, you know, classic quote in religious studies that cult plus time equals religion. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, you know, in a way, a, a cult that, 
everybody accepts. I mean, like Jesus was just a cult leader at that time, right? Like he was this guy who emerged and everybody was like, who is this dude who like thinks he knows everything? Um, so it is, it is incredibly nebulous, but what I can say is that the word cults is not enough to be able to determine if a group is dangerous. Um, you need to look more closely than that. And, uh, and yeah, and the word, and the word cult just simply has no hard and fast definition. I mean, there are a lot of religious scholars and sociologists and psychologists that I talked to for my book who don't even use it formally. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's become so much of a negative connotation. You know what I mean? Like even, you know, there will be, it would get a lot of clicks as an episode title, but you know, Jesus was a cult leader. I think people would say, well, he's not like Charles Manson. It's like, it doesn't mean they're inherently evil, what it means is they had a small follow. That's what a cult is—a small radical following of people. That's right. Um, I mean, that- in in cultish, I I chart the etymology and history of the word cult, and the word itself did not always have negative connotations. Um, the word earliest version of the word cult can be found centuries ago. It had a very innocent meaning. It simply meant homage paid to divinity or offerings made to win over the gods. Over the next few hundred years, it evolved to mean just like simply another kind of churchly classification, like religion, sect, cults. Hmm. Um, by the mid 20th century, it had evolved to mean something kind of dark because the emergence of new religions during that time um, sort of frightened some uh, old school Christians yeah. and they wanted to you know, demonize some of those groups. So cults became associated with like charlatans and kooks and con artists, well, but and the Manson still, murders and, and, and well, exactly. panic, you know, that- so then in the sixties and seventies, you had the widely, you know, media covered Manson murders and the Jonestown massacre. And not until then was cult really put on the map as something that every American should know about and fear. Um, and then of course, as soon as cults became scary, they also became cool. And that's why we have phrases like cult followed and cult classic and whatever. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the, the perspective of, you know, the cult side. So obviously very in danger, very in, you know, there's some cults that aren't necessarily even unhealthy, you know, very passionate groups of people bonding over something, you know, things like that. Um, but speaking specifically to, negative um, cultish groups. And my show specifically, I deal with people who've experienced physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental manipulation, financial, you know, manipulation, uh, giving entire paychecks when they can't pay rent to the church, you know, things like that. Um, You know, how does, how does that happen? I mean, I mean, you mentioned in your book, um, conditioning, so learned behavior in response to a stimulus, which I would say we're always being conditioned by any piece of marketing or anything, but specifically coercion is interesting to me. Um, and that us versus them mentality, you know, um, can you kind of break that down? Like, why is it, why is it so important for cultish leaders to separate people from everyone else in order to be able to abuse and manipulate? And why don't people who are in it leave? That's the question that always comes up. If you notice you're in an area where you're losing your money, your family's falling apart, why don't you leave? How do they set that up? Right. So in the beginning, you'll be what's called love bombs, which I'm sure has been brought up before on your show or people that heard, have heard of it where you'll We've be We've all shattered. experienced it. 
Yes, or you've all experienced it. You'll be showered with this love and attention and promises that you're special and you can access this wisdom and you can be a part of this movement. You know, you are loved, like you, you are amazing. Um, And that feels really good. Like who doesn't want all of that to be true? That's, you know, gonna provoke a a really intense conversion event. Um, And there are other techniques that can cause a a really intense conversion event that like moment when all of a sudden you need to be a part of this group and your life is no longer the same. Um, All all kinds of things. And and some fundamentalist Christian groups, they'll have you engage in like a speaking in tongues or a glossolalia practice. Um, There are so many techniques. Um, And then, you know, slowly but surely they will bait and switch you like they will go back on these promises that were made and they will use this superior status that they've given you with maybe a special name and you know buzzwords that you've been taught that nobody else can understand they will use your superior status as a as an excuse to mistreat you mm-hmm. they will you know paint this portrait of everyone on the outside as you know fundamentally depraved. Um, all of these people have succumbed to a Luciferian program. You know, they'll, they'll use all these like really loaded words to um, make a- anything on the outside seem like you absolutely on no level can, can leave. Mm. Um, yeah. But if you absolutely on no level can leave, then they can do anything they want to you and they can force you to do any anything and and you will if you want to stay find a way to stay and they'll give you every reason to want to stay um and sometimes they you know make it physically very difficult to leave financially very difficult to leave and so those are some of the reasons why you might stay in combination with you know another human ingrained reasoning flaw like the sunk cost fallacy which is this bias that tells us, you know, the longer we've spent somewhere, the more we've invested in something, the more that justifies spending even more time, money, money, energy, love. Um, But the reasons why someone might not leave after years and years can be compared to why someone might not get out of an abusive one-on-one relationship. You know, it's easy to victim blame, but who can't think of an incredibly like charismatic, smart person who's spent too many years in a toxic one-on-one relationship, whether that was a, a lover or a job or whatever it is, you know, you might not have anywhere else to go. You might not have the means. You might, you know, be be afraid that no one will ever love you like this person. There, there are so many, so many reasons to stay that really speak to the human condition and the human spirit. And, you know, like, no, it's not logical to stay, but like human beings don't make decisions about everything in their life based on like pros and cons lists. Like we're all just these like fleshy humans operating on instinct and emotion, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, um, I heard someone in a sales thing one time say that people make decisions based on emotion. They justify with logic and, you know, that's what you see happen so often with abusive relationships or in this instance in abusive organizations. Um, and I, I really loved in your book, you talked about, um, what's a direct quote. It says, when you convince someone that they're above everyone else, it helps you both distance them from outsiders and also abuse them because you can paint anything from physical assault to unpaid labor to verbal attacks as a special treatment reserved only for them. And t- to me, that was very early on in your book. Um, and that was where I was like, my brain kicked into like, 
okay, I need to really, really, really pay attention because there was so much in that statement, you know, um, you talk about being separated, like growing up, it was, you're either in the church or you're in the world, you know, there's the worldly influences, um, you know, the, the terms you got called, you know, it was like your brother so-and-so or, um, the, the name of my show is preacher boys because young men in the movement were called preacher boys. Like they got to throw on their suit and get their Bible. And like, they were kind of like the people they got pointed to from the pulpit and said, you're doing great. Like you're the best. And then also too, like the abuse, like ever literally everything in that sentence, you know, unpaid labor, physical assault, verbal attacks, that's all things that were very commonplace. And, you know, again, those thought term and cliches come out of like, oh, you know, God, uh, God tests those that he loves. And like, um, you know, you have to, I mean, you have to live like no one else, you know, so you can someday get your crown in heaven and all these different things. It was, it was so manipulative. And the reason that you didn't leave was yes, the sunk cost fallacy was huge. I know for me, it's like your relationships, your politics, your Everything is in that world. Your finances are tied up in that world. What are you going to do? You know, if you've, and for many people, I'm lucky I skipped the Christian college route. Many of the people on my show went to four years of college and paid for a degree that is not worth anything. Um, So you go layer after layer. And this is where your book, I think, is important. And I think Stephen Hassan's book is important. I think listening to, you know, like your podcast or like Sarah's podcast is it gives you a lot of empathy for people because especially your book, you're reading through all the different things people get wrapped up in. There's nobody that could pick up that book that could say, Oh, I wasn't part of something like this, you know, like <laughs> yeah, there's implicating us all. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're all in this, in this position where we get, we get drawn to these idealistic versions of the world that just don't exist. Um, and I guess, you know, as we kind of get near the end, you know, again, we're all susceptible. We know that, what are the best ways people can be on the lookout and protect themselves from becoming part of a vulnerable kind of situation? Right. I mean, I don't want to encourage people to be too cynical or too wary because again, that can spoil some of the most like enchanting fun parts of being a human. Um, I, I don't discourage anyone from involving themselves in spiritual practices, woo woo practices, even like fringy practices. Um, but it's about being able to tap in and tap out. Like Hmm. you need to be able to return at the end of the hour or day or whatever it is to an identity that is more complex than this one ideology, this one group, this one guru. And if you're not able to do that, then that's a red flag. Like you need to be able to strip off that linguistic uniform at a Mm. point. Um, And if, you know, the language that you're using all day, every day causes you to, you know, morally divorce yourself from some one dimensionally inferior other causes you to, you know, have a strong emotional response, but stop asking questions Um, those are, that's a sign that, that, you know, that type of language is, is worth questioning. Um, and it's hard because it feels really good to speak, you know, a special code language that Mm. makes you feel like you're doing something right in the world. Um, but at the end of the day, it's probably better to be 
a member of multiple different cults and participate casually and to make room in your brain for nuance um, because that's really where the, the protection of your identity really exists. Well, there you go, guys. Join multiple cults. <laughs> that's your that's your advice. No, I, I I think that's helpful, and I think the the short version too is I I think just in, educate yourself. You know, just like you know, it is the responsibility of organizations and people to educate you on who they are and be honest. But you can't always rely on that, so you have to be able to spot the red flags. And I I do think, um, and I think your short answer is buy your book because I think reading, uh, <laughs> reading, reading cultish really for everybody listening, it will point out, I mean, seriously, like trying to listen to political discourse or religious conversations and debates after reading your book is very difficult. And I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. And I think it's important for people to be able to spot those red flags that, you know, cult leaders aren't usually going to, uh, to show you right out of the gate. <laughs> right. So um, that's awesome. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. I want to give you a second to talk about uh, your podcast, um, your book, Cultish, which I've mentioned and people should definitely check out in the show notes. Uh, but what are some of the things you're working on and what's the best place for people to connect with you? Sure. Well, um, you can follow me on Instagram uh, if you want to join my little cult uh, at Amanda underscore Montel. Um, my book Cultish is available in hardback ebook and audiobook wherever you buy books. Um, and, and I have a podcast called Sounds Like a Cult about the modern day cults we all follow, um, where every week my co-host and I pick a different fanatical group from the zeitgeist from soul cycle to tony robbins to fraternities and sororities to trader joe's uh to try to determine this thing sounds like a cult but is it really and if so is it a live your life a watch your back or i get the fuck out level cult <laughs> right right well thank you so much for for jumping on and seriously guys check out the podcast, the book, um, it, it's amazing. I know I've talked about it ad nauseum, just in my group, uh, in my own little cult, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And, uh, and I really appreciate you sharing your perspectives. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.